0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Oh, I missed you all. And the studio is so luxurious. There's no sun beating down on us. Wow, we have had so many live shows lately. Live shows are fun, but this is fun too. Uh, it's easier to look at all the screens, do all the things. I've got some good guests today. We're going to really have like a serious heart of Minnesota, heart and soul of Minnesota show because I've got Vang on the first part of the show and he has Union Kitchen. He is kind of bringing Hmong food into the contemporary American Twitter verse, uh, Adrian, you know, <laughs> uh, Adrian Bully, like all kinds of like we're going into the future with Mung food with Yevang. And then second half, we're going to be talking to Eric Forsberg, who has Devil's Advocate, Dan Kelly's Pub, uh, Eric the Red. He's been slowly putting together a little empire of you know, kind of quirky places, all near sports venues. Gotten a little famous with the Bloody Mary the size of an aquarium. You know that what I'm talking about. Uh, So this is going to be good. We're going to be talking about Plates for Good. He's part of this group of uh, restaurants that are giving 10% of their proceeds to Second Harvest Heartland to combat hunger. So that's just – I feel like we're just really – in the essence of Minnesota we're doing good we're having ridiculous bloody marys we're taking mung food in new directions like that's that's us that's what we're doing right now so very excited about this show if you want to participate you know text us 81807 find me on the twitter bot you know i'm addicted i am dear dara on twitter or find me on facebook i know a lot of you are Facebook heads, and I am Dara Grumdal up on that thing. So um, you know, you got questions about Hmong food. You got questions about the future of food in the Twin Cities. <clears throat> Send them. Send them to me. I will answer. I will endeavor. All right. So first off, we've got Yia Vang from Union Kitchen. Yia is kind of been just hustling around the Twin Cities the last couple of years. He's doing pop ups everywhere. He's um, Every time I go to, like, a food market, he's got the stand that everybody's, like, swarming. like, there's one good place to eat in here, and it's it's Yevang's. He's got pop-ups and Cook St. Paul routinely. I am very, very interested in all things Yevang's up to. Yeah, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. All
1: right. So let's get into the, the basic one, which is where'd you come from?
2: Yeah, so um, my mom's side of the family is uh, – are you know local East Siders here in St. Paul? So um, as kids, we would always you know come up here. But um, originally I'm from Central Wisconsin, so I'm a Wisconsin kid. Um, went to school at UW La Crosse. Um, uh, that's where I majored in. Uh, in- Interpersonal com and minor in a me- PR and marketing. So.
1: Oh, that's why you're so good at the internet. <laughs> Got a very good internet presence. Yeah. Kids, you want to see how it's done. You go to unionkitchenmn.com. He's like, uh, oh, that's slick.
2: Well, that's that's kind of – we have a really some really good uh, friends and, and, and team that puts that together. So, um, yeah, everyone always asks if I went to culinary school. Uh, never did it. I just jokingly always said uh, – I went to the school of hard knocks, where basically you just worked in kitchens growing up. So that
1: was the approved path up until about a decade ago.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And so you, when did you? So you grew up in Wisconsin. Yep. So we'll have to have a Sheboygan roll discussion at some point. Like, do you okay. do you do you need to have a Sheboygan roll to make a real bratwurst, or is it?
2: Oh, uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I grew up in Wisconsin, and I, I tell people like a lot of people always will ask, "Hey." So do you just like eating Hmong food only? And I'm like, dude, here's the thing. Like, I'm I'm Hmong through and through, but, like, I'm still a Midwest boy too. So, like, <laughs> like, Culver's, my jam, double cheeseburger, cheese curds, like, that's, you know, that's still me. You know, so it's, for me, it's like I don't really pick and choose whatever. I, you know, I get the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, I, I don't understand. People are very... Um... I don't think people like think it through a lot of the times. It's like just because you're, if you're British, it doesn't mean you didn't grow up with curry chips. Like mm-hmm. and you had curry yeah. chips, or your grandparents had them. You know, you that's as British as anything else. Mm-hmm. It's not like. uh I don't know. It's not like curry chips are growing in the jungles of <laughs> of yeah. the subcontinent or something. It's like it yeah. doesn't work that way. Um. So you, so you grew up in Wisconsin, but you didn't answer. Sheboygan oh. roll. Do you need? I have a Wisconsin friend who's very oh, angry yeah. at me all the time. He's like, you. It's not a bratwurst unless it has the crunchy Sheboygan roll. Are you on team Sheboygan roll, or are you just going any which uh, way?
2: A good brat is a good brat to me. Yeah. You know. So I'm. I'm just. Uh, yeah
1: see andy if you're listening <laughs> the real wisconsin people will eat a a brat not on a hard crusty roll though it is good
2: yeah it doesn't matter
1: all right so you grew up in wisconsin wind and then you came to the twin cities we about are a magnet eight, we draw you in yeah
2: about eight eight years ago uh I, m- I moved up to this area uh again like i said my mom's side of the family's from up here so i was re- we were always really familiar with it and uh, my siblings, they all kind of went to school up here, and so um, yeah, so I moved up here. And the the original, um, my original idea was to go to grad school. Um, I wanted nothing to do with kitchen. I grew up cooking. I grew up cooking in high school, college. It was a job. I wanted nothing to do with kitchens. Uh, uh, I. It was a, like a love-hate. Like, I always tell people, it's like that ex-girlfriend you always break up with, but you end up back for a few months, and then...
1: And then your friends say, yeah, yeah, that's not the person you're supposed yeah, to be with. Yeah, like, <laughs> but then you're like,
2: you know, you guys just know each other so well. It's, uh, and then, like, 15 years in, you're like, I might as well put a ring on it. So Oh, <laughs> so,
1: darn, that's... Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. All right, that so. doesn't sound good for you in cooking. <laughs> uh, those are, those are not always the best relationships.
2: Yeah, but, you know, but what I, I tell people is I think about, uh, eight years ago, um, you know, when I moved up here, I, I've found, for me, uh, cooking change took a really big turn for me because before cooking was like it was like what ten dollar an hour job. You know, you, you're working basically second shift. You don't see anybody. You, you you're a night owl half the time, and it wasn't. You know, um, and we talk about this right now in the industry a lot. You know, it's it's not a sustainable life, um, and, and especially if you want a family and if you want a normal social life, it's not. And so I didn't want to be a part of that. I was just like, man, like this, it's taking a toll on my body. I don't know if I can handle this, you know. And so that's why, again, there was that love hate. You know, I love the element of actually cooking, but like, but that nightlife, I just it just wore on me. And um, but I think in the last, I'm gonna say five six years, it's really changed the way the way that you can um, think about food. And- okay,
1: so you decided after kind of working for a job mm-hmm. job. In food, you came up here and then you were like, I'm going to start a company. I'm going to be a chef. I'm going to do all the things. Well,
2: uh, kind of. Uh, again, I was very nervous. I, I never wanted to start my own thing, you know, and I worked for some really, really great guys around here. And, and I never wanted to kind of do my own thing. Um, but there was just – I guess there was just something inside that just wasn't satisfied about for, for me um it was how do you get your voice out there especially in the cooking world because everybody is so quick to be your voice you know everyone's so quick to be like oh this is what you're trying to do but then it's like "Ah, but no that's not really what i'm trying to do you know and so that was i I think in the last five years have been this kind of um i I call it like trimming the fat you know like you're kind of really just trying to find fine-tune what uh, our identity is, what our ethos is, and stuff like that. All right. So
1: you've been doing this in the vernacular of Hmong food. So if Mm -hmm. people don't know, uh, Hmong people or a a group of people from kind of northern part of Southeast Asia Mm -hmm. were chased out of China in the 1800s by the Chinese. Mm -hmm. They ended Mm -hmm. up in the the places in the world we now call Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Vietnam, Mm -hmm. uh, were... Key American allies in the Vietnam War,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, when the Vietna- our Vietnam, when our soldiers went to Vietnam and they needed mm-hmm. to to get things done around the Mekong in the jungle, mm-hmm. the Hmong were the people that helped them do this because you can't just yep. go navigate the jungle; it yep. doesn't work that way. And
2: then, if, if you know, um, if you're kind of a history buff, you you also remember too that technically, uh, the U.S. at that time was not did not like the c- Congress didn't declare war, so technically America wasn't in war so a lot of the um so what happened was uh the the government and the cia came in and said hey we need paramilitary troops to kind of work you know as a proxy army for us to work with us and and uh they found these people that lived in the hills of laos and there were the Hmong peoples and um and basically they gathered all the um the men the boys and said hey like we'll we'll train you we'll give you weapons we'll pay you um and once some of their main missions were uh uh, running night ops and then uh rescuing down pilots like the u s uh um, air force would uh take pilot uh take planes and bomb the ho Chi Minh Trail. and if they were shot down the you know the Hmong people were the ones who knew the terrain. so they were so my my father and his brothers my uncles were a part of that and so um uh but then after the u s pulled out Everything happened uh the, yeah, so after
1: the u s pulled out, I think a lot of Hmong people kind of hoped things would simmer down. Mm-hmm. things would not simmer down. I mean, there no. were just you yep. know the the different groups funded by the Communists mm-hmm. were just trying to hunt down and kill all yep. Hmong people in so the in then the, the great
2: yep, so the great migration I you know that's kind of what I call it, but uh, uh, ended up uh, all, a lot of the Hmong people in Laos uh, came over to Thailand, like northern Thailand area. Yeah, they walked. They just like, mm-hmm. pick up everything yeah. and just yeah.
1: walk out of the jungles. It's an amazing story to me. And just mm-hmm. you know, mothers with babies and yep. uh, you know, everything all all that they could carry on their backs. Yep. Just their yep. rice pots and just yep. getting out I yep. mean, it's a it's a horrifying it's a yeah. horrifying thing to imagine.
2: Definitely. And it's one of those things that uh growing up as kids you hear these stories and you're like, Wow, like you feel like it's like a movie where it's like no, that that wasn't. Like, you look at your mom, you're like, that wasn't you guys. And it's like, yeah. And, and so we, uh, our family, my parents ended up in Nai, which is a refugee camp in Thailand. And so that's where I was born. Oh, okay. So, yep. So I was born there and uh, we moved to America when I was five. Oh. So, yeah. So we landed here. So in, you were like
1: in the barbed wire ring. Like
2: that was. A- yeah. Yeah. You know, it's. Funny, uh my, my grandma when she was uh, still here with us, she would always tell me stories like you would run around and not wear pants and I'm like, Oh man, I want to do that now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh you know, and so yeah. So yeah, it's, we're, we're and then we moved there as five and I started kindergarten right away and didn't know an ounce of English and just hopped in school and All right, of, so, uh,
1: so obviously Hmong food was, you know, in its native environs um, different than it is here. You had uh, mm-hmm. Wild herbs definitely. you had. Yep. You know, uh, yep. That's where chickens come from, the mountains of Laos mm-hmm. and Burma. That's like where all the chickens mm-hmm. of the earth come from, yeah, the yeah. wild chickens of that part yeah. of the world. Uh, it's, but then you have to translate this into a modern
2: vernacular. Mm-hmm. We yep. use
1: a tapas, a small place for yeah, sharing definitely. and things like that.
2: So you know, this is what we tell people. When people ask me what Hmong food is, I just say Hmong food isn't a type of food. It's a philosophy of food. It's a way of thinking about food. So if you look at a, if you look at the Hmong people, one of the one of the biggest things is that we, our people, we've never really had a country of our own. We never had a land of our own. I even say we don't even have a flag and and we don't have an anthem. And a lot of times when a group of people don't have all those, they they have this sense of loss of identity. But the one thing they do hold on to is their food. So the Hmong people, one of the reason why we our people are always constantly moving is we're we're, we're farmers. So you go to where the good land is, where the fertile land is. In the hills of Laos, what happens is, as the uh, as the hard rain comes, the rain season comes, all the nutrients are um, washed to the lowlands. Well, then a lot of the a lot of the uh, dirt that you get up in the hills of Laos, where a lot of Hmong people were, um, you only get two seasons. Oh, you get one, maybe two seasons, and then you got to move. So our people are constantly moving. And one of the great things that I feel like our people have done. And and as I think about my, you know, my parents, my grandparents, my great grandparents is what they've done is everywhere they went, they learned different techniques, different strategies from the people from that land. And then they've taken that and they forged it into our own culture. Not, I I hate the word fusion, but I I like the word forge because it was, they took that and they, they said, how does this work through our view? You know, and and I see, you know, if you want to quote unquote talk about modern Hmong food, like I, I see that is what we're trying to do here. So Hmong food, the, the kind of Hmong food we're doing here in the Midwest, up here in the north, is totally different from the Hmong families that are doing it in Sacramento, Southern oh, California. because interesting. Because it's, it's all terroir, right? It's all about what's around the land, what what what's plentiful. What, how can we use the land? So, so a so lot. Of, you're a
1: northern Hmong chef. That's what we we're I, very I, I into guess, the idea of the north yeah. of Minneapolis-St. Paul I, magazine. I guess,
2: yeah, I, I guess I guess that's what you can do. Uh, you can call it, but for me, like, um, like for example, one of our, one of the dishes that we did was this. Uh, we did like a fried rice. Everybody knows fried rice, right? We we did a fried rice dish, but to really because but for me, I love like smoked trout, right, or smoked whitefish. So instead of uh, you know using pork or whatever, we did a, a smoked trout, you know, a fried rice dish, Ooh, and then that we sounds good. yeah, and then uh, and then for the vegetables we did like turnips, we did rutabaga, kohlrabi, you know, vegetables that us here in the north know, uh, but but if I try to translate that to uh, like the Hmong. You know, people that live in, like, Southern California, they'll be like, well, you know, we just. Oh, yeah, kohlrabi and smoked trout is not their thing. But it's, I think that that's what we're doing. Like, that's what, and that's why I tell our cooks. Like, I'm like, we we aren't just cooks. We're we're storytellers. You know, one of the things uh, we love saying in Union Kitchen is that every dish has a narrative. And if you follow that narrative long enough and close enough, you get to the people behind the dish. And once you're there, it's actually not about the food. It's about the people. And we realize that food is a catalyst into cultivating great relationships. And so if you want to know our people, know our food. And when you know our food, you realize that the place is in the history of our people. And The thing that I love saying about the Hmong people and especially our culture is that our, um, the Hmong culture is intricately woven. Our, our cultural DNA is intricately woven into the foods that we eat. So if you want to know where we've been, know, get to know our food. And it actually tells the story of where our people have been. And and I and the thing that me and Chris, who's you know uh, he's my cousin, he's also the co-owner of Union Kitchen with me. The thing Chris and I are always trying to do is like we want to keep telling our story here in the north and and use it to pay homage to like I, for me it's to pay homage to my to my father and to my mother who sacrificed everything to get us here. You know I think about my father a lot. He, um, uh, I, I remember when I was a kid I, I said something really dumb. You know it's just stupid kid stuff and and. About my dad, and my I remember my grandma pulled me aside and said, "Don't you ever say that." And he said, "Your your, your father was a well respected man in our village. People like listened to him. Uh, people um loved him. But here in America, like nobody knows him. But he's like, but he, but then my mom, I remember my grandma said he left all of that so that you can have a you can have a future. And and that I mean, as a kid, like that really did change the way I view my dad. It's just like how could a like his unconditional love of leaving everything behind so that his children has a chance at the American dream, and so so for me, cooking the food that we cook is an echo of the legacy of our parents, and it and so so I hear a lot of people go, "Hey, Southeast Asian food is very trendy right now. Like it's sexy, it's cool." <laughs> and I'm like, "It's not about trendy or cool for me. It's about telling my parents' story. It's about telling." people and, and when they're eating with us and say hey my mom hands have been feeding me for 34 years there has never been a time I think about that my mom has ever said I've, I've gone over visit or she knows I'm a cook she's never said hey honey can you make a dinner for us tonight like I, I just don't want to like she, I don't ever remember my whole life that she's ever said hey can you make dinner like she's in her 60s and she's still the same hands have been feeding me growing up is the same hand that's feeding my nieces and my nephew Oh, that's and beautiful and all of that gets put i want to put all that and, Chris and I, we want to put all of that in in a plate and as we as you come to our pop up as you sit down and have dinner with us we want you to feel that atmosphere we want you to feel that legacy of our the sacrifices of, of our parents our grandparents and then understand that our people this is what it's built on
1: perfect all right, Vang, that's where we're going to leave it. This was a delightful conversation. Everybody, you want to try his food. You want to know why he's a rising star. You want to know this legacy of his grandparents, his father, his, his, whole, his whole world. It's such a northern story right now. Uh, you can try his food any time on a Friday at Cook St. Paul from 5 to 9, or check out his classes, different things he's doing at UnionKitchenMN.com. When we come back, I'm going to answer one of your questions from my Ask Me Anything. All right. So that was Yia Vang from Union Kitchen, Minnesota. All right. I've okay. got time for a quick ask me anything here. I've got a question. How was swimming with dolphins? So those of you who are following me on social have gotten to see. I went to the Bahamas for Delta Sky Magazine, my, one of my erstwhile employers. And I was uh, working on a sustainable seafood story, this place called Atlantis. I'm going to get a guest from there on. It's a fascinating place. And they gave me the opportunity to to swim with these dolphins, dolphins that were uh, rescued from during Hurricane Katrina when an, an aquarium in Houston washed out, was my understanding. And uh, these these dolphins are well acclimated at this point to their new place. And I have never put on a wetsuit. I was kind of nervous. They're very big. You th- like You see a dolphin on TV, and you're like, oh, it's a beautiful spiritual thing. And you get up close, you're like. Oh, it's as big as a cow. That thing's big. They're big animals. And I was very nervous but I, uh, Atlantis, a uh, wonderful trainer, talked me through it and got me in the water and it was so cute. They give you fish to feed them and you do belly rubs and they swim around in circles and at the end of the day like I've seen so many things where people are like, a oh, spiritual moment of magic. That was not it for me. I did not have, but I did have a big feeling of like just the best dog, you know, when you're near a really good dog and it's just the nicest, friendliest, loving, really well trained, happy. It made me incredibly happy. So that's a that's a story. I got in the water. I got over my fear of big animals. It was fun. It was not, you know, I didn't I didn't find my spiritual energy with the aliens or something. But I did I did love it. It was so fun. And my favorite part was, of course, Being food-obsessed, I think my favorite part was feeding it. They kept giving me this cooler of fish, and I could just feed this. So much fun. If you put it in its mouth sideways, then it flips the fish up in the air and catches it. I'll watch that all day. So much fun. All right. We come back. We're going to talk to Eric Forsberg from Devil's Advocate and talk about plates for good and doing good when you're eating out. All right. Yes, I got a question. What was that resort where I swam with the dolphins? It's called Atlantis. I think it's the biggest resort in the Caribbean. It's a cool place. I got a lot to say. Right now I'm switching gears. We're talking to Eric Forsberg. Since I've been in the Twin Cities writing, writing about French fries, uh, Eric Forsberg has been putting together a little empire. He has Devil's Advocate Bar, Dan Kelly's Pub, Eric the Red, which I know all you Vikings fans know because it's right Mm -hmm. across from the stadium. Mm -hmm. Um, It's my favorite place for Scandinavian barbecue. It's only, you know, you're like, ah, I would like this brisket to have lingonberries, and that can be a thing. That My favorite yeah. thing at Eric the Red is that cucumber salad. That's just totally basic, pure, it's easy, easy. Mm-hmm. but I don't make it as much as I should because it's so good. All right. Eric Forsberg is here. We're going to talk about Plates for Good. We're also going to talk about – so you just kind of have this amazing talent for collecting the bars that people don't quite understand, <laughs> don't quite know what to do with, and then making them very Minneapolis and very good. So tell me about that. Are you a, a placemaker? What is your –
3: I think it's more about uh, in, investing in our neighborhood, and um, you know I'm I'm very much uh, a transplant to Minneapolis. Uh, I didn't grow up here, but uh,
1: where did you grow up?
3: I'm originally from Washington D.C. Um, Washington D.C. that uh, swamp
1: that it, we are constantly at war at. Yes, yes,
3: that's the <laughs> one <laughs> is the reason we left. Um, but I did do my uh, did my high school time in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. I did college down here in Minneapolis.
1: Oh that that's how I stayed too. I came yep. to go to college and never left. Yeah. It's a lure. You get here and you're like, That's the good life. All I right. Know. So you're a neighborhood you're a neighborhood understander, is that yes, the
3: that's a good way to put it. So I you know, I very much cut my teeth down here, um, just working in our industry for a number of years and uh I spent a lot of time on my uh Saint Thomas campus down here in my entrepreneurship program. And uh I've stayed and lived in this neighborhood for for far too long now.
1: That St. Thomas program is responsible for a lot of restaurant and food businesses. It's very interesting. It's true. Uh, And so when I think of what you did with Dan Kelly, it's like, that's kind of perfect. So it's right downstairs uh, from us here at WCCO Radio, so I'm very aware of it. But you rolled out this hilarious and kind of sophisticated... Bloody Mary program and so everybody who goes to the twins stops by gets a fancy Bloody Mary or the aquarium Bloody Mary which is this (laughs) bonkers thing I wrote about for the magazine it's like imagine a a, you know office wastebasket or a punch bowl like it's so much Bloody Mary it's for four people it's got all these skewers everything's sticking out of it people love to get it take their pictures put on Instagram you'll be talking about it for the rest of your life you're like I I harpooned the great <laughs> whale, like it has this kinda... <laughs> yeah. So that was a you know like a fun insight, like not you know. Not...
3: Yes. Well, we uh, the ideology behind our Bloody Mary program actually started at Devil's Advocate, uh, the original location, which is on 10th Street, which in in its previous history was Hell's Kitchen, was um, La Peep, who when we first moved to Minnesota was my parents' favorite restaurant, so it was very. Very coincidental that I should take that restaurant over at some point and do something with it. But um, we were trying to build a brunch program. And, um, you know, Devil's Advocate having as many failures that came after um, Hell's Kitchen leaving as it did, it was a very difficult space to try and turn around. So the. the No
1: Skyway, no parking. Got to give people a reason to come, Minnesota. That's
3: it. So we we really focused on the drink program and particularly the Bloody Mary program. And um, um, the a woman who run helps me run my company is uh Chris Assasson. She's been my right hand, my left hand and probably both my feet many times. But uh <laughs> that relationship really started with a bloody mary. So I she came in and uh and uh we started building them together and they and it 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 really started to work but then in a in a whatever moment of brilliance we'll call it that we said well, let's just build this monstrosity of a of a bloody in it. <laughs> You know, no one will buy it, but it'll be I don't know, it's fun. We'll take pictures of it and it'll be great. Well, we ended up finally having to put a second bartender on to actually make them because they uh those poor bartenders uh they we weren't their favorite people when we put that on the menu, let's put it that way.
1: But I think it I think of building that thing, you're less like a, a chef and more like a florist. You're like, how oh, can I <laughs> yeah, balance exactly these right. things in here? Yep. <laughs> okay. So you did that at Dan's Kelly's. Um, I have to ask you about the devil's advocate. You took over the old Masa space on Nicollet Mall, so that's right in the heart of tourist Minneapolis, right? That's where uh, it is by Orchestra Hall. It's by the local. It's the (laughs) you know probably the place where the most people who don't live here walk past, right? That's where it is. And you took that on another difficult space, and then turned out to be really difficult because you took it on before the Super Bowl, and you're. Can I ask? Dare yes, I ask
3: yes. when? <laughs> when? When is it going to open? Uh, you've got about a month.
1: A month? Yeah, oh. at the most. Really? We're
3: very close. Yes.
1: All right, and so it's going to be Devil's Advocate. Is yes, that it correct? is.
3: It is, and um, you know, in opening Devils. It's always been. Again, we're very invested in our local community, and it's funny that the irony of being a Devil's Advocate, but the irony of being on the most touristy area, if you will, of Minneapolis. We want to bring a bit of something for the locals to nickel it as well.
1: And I want that because it's also the place with the most transit. Yes. It's very easy to get through. Yes. Oh, my 20-something web team, like this is where they live and work and are on their way right This home. is
3: where the locals drink.
1: Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. It's uh, got the locals. so That name's taken, but it's a true <laughs> fact. So you're going to – can you give me a little preview? What's it going to be like?
3: Sure. Yeah, we are um, – well, it was interesting with what we dealt with at the previous location in its uh, – Are are not being able to plan long term. We'll just put it that way. Um, The old
1: location, if people don't know, was in a historic building that is getting bulldozed as we do too often in Minneapolis. Correct.
3: correct. So we were going month to month basically and doing a a full menu revamp as you remember my meatball menu that started that whole. I didn't uh, like it. I know you didn't. (laughs) 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 I know you didn't. (laughs) It's still, I will say, still near and dear to my heart. I still love that menu. But. Other people um, do. I could a, be wrong. We did a full uh, menu revamp in there at one point under uh, Chef Nathan, Nathan Beauchamp. And uh, later when, when Chef moved back out east, uh, he is also from the D.C. area, moved back out east. Uh, that's when the ball started kind of rolling with this whole are we going to stay? Are we going to go? Is it going to be next month? And two and a half years later, you know, it takes, a, it takes a lot of investment to revamp a menu. And we were waiting for that sort of the next step of what that menu is going to look like. So um, it just, we, we patched it and we did our seasonal changes, but we never really got to invest in that big change that we wanted. So what this new location is allowing us to do is do that change.
1: And you're going to be a popover bar. What yes. are you going to do? Yes. What are you going to do? Yes,
3: popovers and donuts. That's it. No, I'm kidding. It's, <laughs> that would probably be popular. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. We are, uh, we are doing a lot of fresh pastas, um, which we are working with Italian eatery in South Minneapolis. So we'll be oh, getting fun. a lot of our fresh pasta from uh, the Carreras down there. Um, we will be doing some in-house as well. We are putting in a, um, a significant pizza oven that is an uh, open flame pizza oven. So we'll be making our own crust, some of it from the beer yeast that we expel from our beer program that we have been doing for about six years. So we Ooh,
1: have, I like that. Yeah. A more sophisticated crust, get a little yeast action in there, It'll make it more tasty. Yep. Good.
3: So, and a lot of fresh veg. Um, the idea is to really lighten up that, that menu, and there will be a meatball.
1: All right. Okay. But I like me false
3: I know, I know. But the idea was, you know, I was really inspired when uh several years ago when I was when it was brought to my attention on what, you know, the Nordic Manifesto really meant and if for those who don't know what that is, it's really kind of what drove the whole farm to table um, you know, the whole scene for foraging and and what have you. And that's what inspired Eric the Red was creating so even where that. where you are and Exactly. And of... it's bringing something that meant something it was the idea with eric the red of what barbecue people know is barbecue in this country to be something and we said well what would it have been had we had a barbecue scene here that developed here obviously it would have been very nordic influence and what would that have looked like so kind of combining the idea of that nordic manifesto with it and um so we are carrying that over to uh devil's advocate and its new menu as well so we have partnerships with uh, we've actually acquired a farm what yeah i know I didn't tell you that part. So we are uh, actually, uh, Carissa at the moment is, uh, is uh, wildly working with uh, her green thumb to sprout new peas and microgreens for our new um, uh, greenhouse that we have. It's up in uh, Otsego. Really? Uh, yep. Yeah, and we're going to be working on um, mushrooms, microgreens, edible flowers first, walk before we run. Um, and then we've developed a partnership with uh, another group up in uh, Grantsburg, Wisconsin, where we are uh, raising um, sustainable beef. Oh, cool! So, see,
1: this is what they th- your your parents probably thought: like, oh, if he goes to college, then he's going to be a farmer. No, and then <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he goes, you get out to the Midwest. Next thing you know, here you, he is. Just, it's fully happened. I'm embracing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So you're gonna have your you're gonna ha- raise your own beef. We are. Cannabis. That's that's a level of difficulty that I don't know any chefs have taken that on. Well,
3: it should be interesting. It's a, it's an interesting partnership with uh, two farms in Grantsburg, and uh, uh, it's actually it was put together through a mutual friend of of mine, um, and uh, they have the they, it's farmers that already have a lot of pieces in place. Um, you know, they're growing non-GMO um, uh, corn right now. So this will all be sustainable beef called we're calling it Naked Beef. It's a new company we're putting together for it. Um, wow. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's gonna be a very cool project. And uh we have uh we have our own processing facility, we have our own everything to be able to butcher and bring in. So we hopefully will be able to market this to some other restaurants as well.
1: Oh that's astonishing. This is some crazy news. I don't know if people outside of restaurant world know how it's uh, very unusual that beef processing uh happens with the uh, same people that are uh uh, buying the frill picks. All right, so, um, yeah, right. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, the reason I wanted to have you on, this is all fascinating. We're breaking news left and right here, but to talk about plates for good. So you're you have been committed to, uh, Nate, your neighborhoods, trying to make things, um, you know, more accessible, knit together the community, make it more, more real for all of us, more pleasant for all of us, and then you partner with uh, WCCO Radio and. Uh, Second Harvest Heartland for this whole Hunger Action Month, doing this Plates for Good program. It's pretty cool. So your restaurant, Dan Kelly, Eric the Red, people that go this month, month of September, will you donate 10% of the food tab to Second Harvest Heartland. And that's, that's just amazing. This makes, you know, every dollar that is raised this way makes meals for three people. Uh, and I don't know if anybody knows this, how many of the people that go to Second Harvest Heartland get food from them. 33% are under 18 and 10% are seniors. You know, so children and seniors are the most food insecure people in our community. Um, it's a, it's a really cool program you've done. So you've, you're really committed to making things, uh, working with second harvest heartland, getting food to the community. Absolutely. It
3: is, I mean, I feel it is a part of our responsibility and whatever industry you've decided to plant yourself into um, ours is, is food. And, uh, you know, we talk, about, we talk about the technology that people have in their hands, whether, you know, with the release of yet another iPhone yesterday. And sure, everybody's going to have one of those in their hand. But uh, there's one thing that everybody has to do each day. They have to eat. And uh, unfortunately, we still don't have full access to – or not everybody has full access to food. And we live – I mean, look at where we live. We're in the breadbasket of – and many people would say the world. And we have people that are starving in our streets, and uh, to me, that just doesn't seem right.
1: It isn't right. It is. It is in fact wrong. And you can't. You can't learn. You can't think if you don't have food. You exactly. can't thrive in any kind of way. All right. Well, Eric Forsberg, I'm gonna thank you so much for coming on today. Everybody, you. if you want to find out more about Plates for Good, you can uh, find the, everything online. I put a I put a link on my own Facebook, and they're also at Plates for Good. Org. You can swing by Eric's place, Dan Kelly's, or Eric the Red, get a burger, get some things, and they will donate 10% of the food tabs to Second Harvest. All right, Eric Forsberg, I could talk to you all day, but we got to wrap it up.
3: That's all right. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, thank you. All right, we'll come back. We'll have time for one more question when we get back. A couple of questions from the text line. Yeah, thoughts on the Rochester market? Uh, imagine High V and the Mayo Clinic are fueling growth over there. Yeah, you know, you'd think that Rochester would be booming more than it is. That has been a mystery for me uh, the whole time. It feels like people in Rochester eat, this is going to sound crazy, at home. They eat in their <laughs> – they, they cook in their houses. The boom that I have seen related to Rochester is more to the east, uh, Lake City, Bayport – Uh, there's a couple of restaurants in there that are, I feel like all, you know, fueled by Mayo Clinic doctors. I'm thinking about the Chef Shack, Bayport, uh, Nosh in Lake City, places like that. So I'm not sure when uh, Rochester or how Rochester booms. I've been down there a few times. It's it's, you know, one of the things you got to do if you're going to have a restaurant scene is eat out. And I feel like uh, Rochester people are more about eating in. You know something different? Let me know. I got a question about, uh, about Bar La Grassa and Butcher and the Boar. What are my opinions of them? Well, Bar is, you know, currently the ruling pasta restaurant in the Twin Cities. Love Bar La Grassa. It's Isaac Becker Restaurant. He has uh, Eatery 112 and Birch Steak. It's high-functioning, you know, always packed for good reason. I would bring out-of-town guests there, book it for my birthday. Great place. Butcher and the Boar I don't love as much, so I do love the Beer Garden. So if you're debating between those two. All right, I will see you here next week. we got longtime DNR wildlife defender Carol Henderson. We need to think about doing copper shot instead of lead. A lot of us are getting lead poisoning. All right. That's kind of weird. But till then, till next week, when we get you all to switch to copper shot, I hope you have a perfect autumn weekend and you eat every single apple.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds.